0: All right, we are starting a new um, topic of study this week, and I'm going to be teaching through, I told you guys, the angel of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard of the angel of the Lord? It's kind of a mysterious figure, isn't it? And um, it's going to be really cool. I've I have been studying all week for this, and I've learned a lot just studying for it. I thought I was kind of knowledgeable on it, but turns out I wasn't. And uh, that's one of the cool things about teaching, it's the highest form of learning, so, angel of the Lord, and you can see by my Bible here the amount of scripture passages. All these are bookmarks. I'm going to take you to today. So, get your Bibles handy or whatever you use to read the Bible. We're going to hit probably I don't know a dozen different passages real quick today, if we have time, and um, we'll just do this. I'm going to wrap up around twelve fifteen, so you guys know, you know you have a you have an end goal, and we're going to go through what I'm I'm basically going to catalog every instance and every interaction with this figure in the Bible called the angel of the Lord. We're going to go through kind of chronologically from the book of Genesis to wherever it stops and explain and talk about and discuss the angel of the Lord as we hit them. Now, that's going to take more than today. There's a lot of different uh, interactions with this figure, uh, biblical characters have with this figure called... The angel of the Lord. But I'm just going to go through them and go through them slowly, and we'll talk about them. We'll write some on the board up here and describe them. And we're trying to answer this kind of overarching question, who is or what is the angel of the Lord? Okay, that's the overarching question It's going to kind of drive us forward for the next, I don't know, however many weeks we talk about it. Before we jump into the angel of the Lord, though, and talk about these interactions, it's important that we discuss celestial or non-physical beings, spiritual beings, okay? Because a lot of people are unfamiliar. They think, well, there's God, there's angels, and then there's us. But there's a lot of different classifications of spiritual or heavenly beings, we could say. There's a lot of different, a lot of different titles we could call them. And I'm not going to cover all of them, but I'm going to give you a quick crash course on the types of spiritual beings that exist and are under God's sovereignty and, and follow God's will. The first of them, we could call them Cheruvim. It's right here in Hebrew. My Hebrew students can read this, maybe. Cheruvim. Cheruvim. It comes from the roots. Cheruv It's also, when we anglicize this word, we call it a cherub. How many of you have heard cherubim? Right? Cheruvim. Cheruvim. We can spell it like C-H. Cheruvim. Okay, it comes from the root haruv, haruv. Haruv. means something that has been drawn near or is close. Okay, if you go to a Orthodox community, uh, whether in like you know Crown Heights, New York, or if you go to Jerusalem, uh, Mea Sharim, and kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, a lot of Hasidic Jews live. They will have they will have a haruv around their neighborhood that will tell them how far it is permissible to walk or travel on Shabbat. And it is usually something like on a light pole, like maybe a flag or some kind of tape around a light pole, and it tells them the boundaries. It, it keeps them close on Shabbat, keeps them charuv on Shabbat, okay? Charuvim are the angelic beings that are close, that are near, that are drawn in. Where do we see charuvim first time in the Bible? Where's the first occurrence we see a charuv? The Garden of Eden. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis three twenty four. Genesis three twenty four. Genesis three twenty four. Let's see if we can find our cheruvim. Thank you guys for sitting up front today. Cheruvim. Now Adam and Eve had just sinned. They ate of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now God is exiling them because sin produces exile. And they can no longer be in the garden. The garden represents the, the dwelling place of God. And it says in verse twenty-four: so he drove them, uh, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree. Um, this it's so hard to translate this, <clears throat> but I've heard it said it's like there were like um, lightning, lightnings going back and forth guarding the entrance. Lightning bolts going back and forth. It's really hard to translate this. But you, some of them will say that it was spinning around or flaming. But the cherubim are guarding the way to the garden. They're guarding the way to the presence of God. The most intimate place on earth where God dwells. Let's see if we can find them again. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 22. Second Samuel 22. I cheated. I knew what I was going to turn to. So I put bookmarks in. So I get there really fast. Second Samuel chapter 22. 2nd Samuel 22. 2nd Sam it's after 1st Samuel, yeah. <clears throat> it goes 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel 22, and look at look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11. Actually, let's read verse 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 11. So 2nd Samuel chapter 22 verse 1. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my Deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. Now jump to verse 11. He rode on a haruv, and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. So you see, David spoke to the Lord. This is David's words. He's describing the God of of the universe, and he's saying that the, he, he's flying. He's riding on a haruv. So you see, those are those are the the entities. We could say the spiritual beings that are the closest to God. Let's find another instance. Go to Psalm eighteen, verse ten. Psalm eighteen ten. Psalm eighteen ten. Psalm eighteen ten. This is a choir. This is, a, uh, this is a psalm that, of David. And he says um, in verse 10, He rides on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. It sounds just like 2 Samuel 22, doesn't it? Now go with me to, um, let's go to Exodus 25. We're going to see if we can find these cherubim again. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And jump down to verse 18. Exodus 25, 18. We're going to read four verses. Exodus 25. Well, let's go to verse 17. Exodus 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half is its breadth. What is that going to be? The Ark of the Covenant, right? He's describing the Ark of the Covenant. That's the kind of the throne of God, the, the dwelling place of God's presence on earth again. Verse 18. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cheruv on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. Let's keep going. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat. Uh, seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, at the ark, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you and command uh, and give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So we see the first time we see the cherubim are at the Garden of Eden. And where in what cardinal direction are they at the Garden of Eden? They're east. East is always a cardinal direction of what? Exile. If you're going east, you're going away from God's presence, right? So we have we have Kharavim that are guarding the Garden of Eden. Then we see Cherovim that are going to end up in the tabernacle, but will later be the temple. And we see Cherovim. In Solomon's temple, tradition holds that there was cherubim this large on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. Sorry, you guys just blocking your view. Very large cherubim. So as you're walking into the temple, if you're coming in as a worshiper, uh, let me see if I can point it, there it is. If you're coming in as a worshiper, you're coming in, and you're going to be surrounded by I lost it. There it is. You're gonna be surrounded by all these images up here of a garden. Okay, as you're walking into the temple of struck this is just a cutaway. It wasn't missing one of its walls or anything. Just a cutaway so you can see inside, okay? But you're gonna be surrounded by images of trees, of, of cherubim. and you get there and it's gonna it's all there to remind you of what it was like in the garden. It's gonna bring you back into the present. So, yes? Um, based off of testimony from contemporary witness like Josephus or um, rabbinic texts. How oh, how do the sculptors know what they look like? Oh, um, let's keep going, and it'll give you some idea what the cherubim look like. Yeah, I'm going to give you some verses and know. That's a good question. How, how do we know what they look like? Let me give you some... Uh, no, we're not there yet. <laughs> you guys want to go there, though? <laughs> let's, let's go to Isaiah, Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. We're going to answer Ted's question. Isaiah 37 I think we might with this verse maybe not but we will if not this verse Isaiah 37 verse 16 Isaiah 37 verse 16 and you gotta remember that what was in the temple and the cherubim that were over top of the Ark of the Covenant was just a physical uh, shadow of what was in the heavenly realm in God's throne room it's just a physical representation of that okay so Isaiah 37 verse 16 are you there? Not yet. It says, And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the Cherovim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see all the words of Sennacherib, which he has uh, sent to mock the living God. So there, Isaiah is giving us a scripture. He's seeing into the heavenly throne room of God, and he's seeing God enthroned on top of Cherovim. Okay? Let's go now to... Ezekiel. Ezekiel is going to answer Ted's question. Ezekiel sees them and describes them in the greatest detail we have ever had. Ezekiel chapter one and in verse five. Ezekiel chapter one, verse five. Give everybody a chance to get there. Ezekiel one five. Ezekiel 1, 5, yep. Let's back up of one verse, verse 4. My heading says, the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were were like gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a cast foot, and they sparkled like uh, like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human heads. And on their four faces, uh, four, four they, they had their faces and wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. I want to read to verse, um, verse 11 here. Um, Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. So there you see a little bit more description of these creatures. Now go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Flip over just a few pages. Ezekiel chapter 10. We're going to see the same thing. Ezekiel says the face of a lion, the face of the ox, the face of an eagle. And we're going to see the same formula in Ezekiel chapter 10. Somebody tell me what verse it is. Ezekiel 10, the four faces. I lost my verse. Verse 14. So, back up though to verse 2 real quick. It says... And he said to the man clothed in linen, "Go in among the whirling wheel- wheels underneath the, ch- the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city." Now go to verse fourteen. You said, yes. And everyone had four faces. The first face was the face of a cheruv, The second face was the face of a uh, human face. The third face was the face of a lion, and the fourth of the face of an angel. Now the word cheruv could also be translated like that of a young man, like a child man. It could be translated. So, the cherubim are the, the most intimate, the closest angelic beings that there are. We, if we don't even call them angelic beings. They aren't ever really called angels, but spiritual, non-physical beings, we could say. And they are what were on the Ark of the Covenant, right? As a physical representation of what was already going on in God's throne room. The next angelic, or I keep saying angelic, but the next... Heavenly, celestial entity or being are these right here. Can anybody sound this out in Hebrew? Seraphim. Seraphim. Seraph means to burn or burning. Seraphim means the burning ones or the fiery ones. The fiery ones. And this is what they look like. Oh, wait for a connection. Good timing there. They look good? They look good, don't they? I broke it. There, there is a, um, anyways, there is a uh, a squadron of Apaches, attack helicopters, in Israel, and they call themselves the Seraphim. The Seraphim. Oh, it is. Well, somebody, okay, we forgot to feed the squirrels this morning, I guess, so whatever anyways look up uh, attack or look up seraphim israel apaches you'll see it they they look awesome but no that's not what they really look like right they're not apache helicopters the seraphim go with me to isaiah chapter 6 isaiah 6 isaiah six, one. is it back okay i'm going to sneak up on it see if i can it there it is i got it i think it's going to stay there it is there's the seraphim And every guy in the room is like, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. the fiery ones. Isaiah six, Isaiah six, one, we're going to read eight verses in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the Seraphim, the flaming ones, each had six wings With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, and they said, this is going to sound familiar to you, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Have you ever wondered why we say that during the liturgy? Yeah, that's why. It's because we're repeating what the seraphim are saying in God's throne. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why would that scare him, to see the Lord of hosts? Because he's holy. He's, we can't see him, right? And live. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is now atoned for. So there we go. We have cheruvim are the close the close ones. Seraphim are the flaming ones, the the fiery ones, right? In Hebrew, the word seraph means burning and is used seven times throughout the book or the text of the Hebrew Bible. It's used as a noun. Sometimes it actually is translated as serpent, like in the Book of Numbers, for instance. It's like a fiery serpent, and it's used four times in the Book of Isaiah. We're not going to dwell too much on those, but let's go to the third category now, which are just. Can anybody sound this out? Melach, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, melach, mm-hmm. or melachim, mm-hmm. if you want to make it plural, mm-hmm. melachim, king. not king, Me- a messenger, Me- a messenger. Me- These are what we call in uh, Greek. We call them angelas, angelas, or angels is what we turn it into in English. Angels. Now, angels, go, to, go with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. Daniel 9. Angels are totally different. And how many of you, maybe you, you thought angels and seraphim and the cherubim are the same thing, but hopefully I'm, I'm clearing some of that up today. Go to Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. Oh, okay, I got it over right here. It says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in... It wasn't me. I wasn't... <laughs> The man Gabriel, I was named after whom whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And we see there's going to be angels all throughout the Bible that appear to human beings. And one of the key characteristics of angels, or Melachim we can call them in Hebrew, Melachim, is that people confuse them as other humans. Okay? Angels are man-like entities that are sent to do a task or to give a message from God. They never take on the name of God, and they're never really confused with God. Beyond the myriad of angels, I mean, we don't really know how many angels there are. There could be tens of millions. We don't really know. But tradition holds that there are seven higher angels, the highest angels. And we might call them archangels. Even This word is only used twice in the New Testament, archangels is but the term archangel itself is not, it's, the Bible isn't really obsessed with calling them archangels, but there does seem to be evidence that there are seven higher angels. Um, it's used in, this term archangel is used in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in Jude 1. It's used to describe, like, the, the archangel Michael, right? Who in Daniel 10 is called the chief of the princes, or he's called the great prince, we could say. There's evidence for these seven great angels. In all throughout the Bible, kind of scattered throughout the Bible, like in Zechariah, he tells about these seven rejoices that are the eyes, the seven eyes of the Lord, which scan to and from throughout the whole earth. Revelation 8 mentions seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then in Revelation 16... It indicates, it says, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. And then Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 mentions the seven spirits whose identity is not specified, but are also equated with the seven lamps of fire that were burning before the throne. So you see, there's a lot of evidence for these. You have myriads of angels, but then you have these seven higher angels that we might call archangels. we're not really sure how many angels exist in deuteronomy 33 it says that on mount sinai god came from the 10 thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand psalm 68 says the chariots of god are tens of thousands and, and thousands and thousands hebrews 12 says when we come to worship we come into the presence of innumerable angels Revelation 5.11, John says, I heard around the throne and uh, and the living creatures and the elders, many voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The job of angels is specific, however. Unlike the cherubim, unlike the seraphim, the job of angels is to interact with humanity. In Luke 1, what do we see in Luke 1? An angel comes to who? Mary. Mary. Yeah, you got it. We've seen Acts eight, Acts ten, Acts twenty two, so on and so forth. They carry out some of God's judgments, angels do. For instance, in Second Samuel twenty four, they bring a plague a plague upon Israel, smiting the leaders uh, of, of the Assyrian army. In Second Chronicles thirty two, we seen angels striking Herod dead because he did not give God glory. I'm sorry, that's Acts twelve, my bad. And then we obviously see in Revelation 16, angels pouring out uh, bowls of God's wrath on the earth. When Yeshua returns, angels will come with him as a great army accompanying their Lord, their King and Lord, that's from Matthew 16. Um, It says in Zechariah 1, that they patrol the earth as God's representatives. Daniel 10 says they carry out war against demonic forces. Also, Revelation 12 says that. John records in Revelation 20, that an angel seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him in the pit. So we see the angels interact with this physical world a lot more than the cherubim and the seraphim do, don't they? In First Thessalonians 4, when Messiah returns, an archangel will proclaim his coming. So in summary, angels don't have wings. Sorry to bust me bubbles here. They don't fly around. They don't have halos. They don't wear diapers or whatever those are. (laughs) Yeah. They don't play little harps, right? But they are often mistaken as humans as they interact. Doesn't Paul say some of you may entertain angels and not realize it, right? They look like humans for the most part, but they're sent to do things for God. They're malachim, messengers, or agents of God's will, okay? So these aren't all the classes of spiritual beings. There's others beyond this. However, there's some dispute about, like, there's the Ophanim, that maybe maybe they're synonymous with one of these three here. But these are the three main categories of spiritual um, beings that I wanted to cover today and kind of lay the groundwork for this figure that we call the Angel of the Lord. You guys ready to jump into the first occurrence of the Angel of the Lord? This is the last category of non-physical spiritual beings, we could say. But what's different about this spiritual being, the angel of the Lord, is that he apparently takes on a full physical form at times. But let's jump into our first occurrence of the angel of the Lord, and let's take note of how this interaction goes. Our first occurrence of the angel of the Lord is going to happen in Genesis chapter 16, if you want to turn there. Genesis chapter 16. We might get like two down today, two two out of the way today, with what time we have left. This is talking about Sarah and Hagar. If you remember, Hagar was a servant of Abram Abram and Sarai. And uh, what did Abram do? He seized the fruit. He had a child with Hagar when he should have waited and had a child, a promised child with Sarai. And it says in verse 1, chapter 16, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He took the fruit. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you, I gave my servant to you, uh, servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, "Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please." Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Then here it is: the angel of the Lord. Here is the first time we see this figure come on. Now before we explain this anymore, let me explain something that happens in biblical translations. All of you have a, probably have an English translation of the Bible. If you're reading your Bible in any language other than Hebrew at this point, you're going to see this anomaly, unless you have like a Messianic or you know maybe like a sacred meaning translation of the Bible. You're going to see what the translators do, because they, they, they don't want to suddenly hit... Hit uh, God's name and then translate and just and put like he- Hebrew letters in the translation. They want to keep it all English, but this is God's name. It's so, a Yud. And I'm going to separate it with uh, with little dashes here because I don't want to erase God's name. Show it in disrespect, but this is God's name in Hebrew: Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. There's a lot of dispute as to how that's to be pronounced exactly, but the way the translators treat it when they come across it because they don't want to suddenly put this Hebrew. These Hebrew letters into the text and confuse the readers. They'll often put to denote that that is that is what we call the tetra. Tetra means four. Grammaton means to speak or to say. Grammaton tetragrammaton. They don't want to confuse the reader and put the tetragrammaton. And suddenly you're reading the Bible and you're like four Hebrew letters. I have no idea how to pronounce them. I don't. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So what they do is they put in all caps L O R D. In all caps. Notice that in your Bible, you see that? How it's like everything is normal, but then you hit that, you hit the tetragrammaton, and suddenly they translate it as L-O-R-D in all caps, like they have the caps lock on. That's to tell the reader that that is God's four-letter name, but we don't want to confuse you by putting four Hebrew letters in there, and you not knowing how to pronounce that. Okay? So, when it says the angel of the Lord, it's using the tetragrammaton there. Okay? I wanted to kind of give that that groundwork before we get into it because we're going to see um, that's going to play out here in a little bit. It says The angel, the Melech of Adonai, the Melech Melech of Yudhe Vavhe, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they can not be numbered for a multitude. There'll be like a great multitude. They can't even count them. So let's pause here and ask a question. Where, why does that sound familiar? Why does this phrase, I will multiply you? Why does that sound familiar? That's what was said to Abraham. Good. That verse should be shocking to us. That verse should be shocking to us. I will multiply your offspring. That's Genesis 12 kind of language. God says, I will make you like the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Genesis 12. And now the angel of the Lord somehow is able to say to Hagar, I will multiply you and your offspring so that it can't even be counted. It's interesting. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you will bear a son and you will name him Yishmael because the Lord has Shemad to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So this is where it gets interesting here. So she called the name she called, so she called the name of the Yudhevave of the Lord. who spoke to her? Wait, who spoke to her? Was it the angel of the Lord? or was it the Lord? Yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> exactly. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, of seeing your El Roi. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Some translations will say I've actually seen him and I've lived. Therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roi or the the place where the, the well of the God who sees. It lies between Kadesh and Bared. So it's interesting. We have a couple of the angel of the Lord appears out of nowhere. He, he tells Hagar, I will multiply your offspring. That's Genesis 12 kind of language that was spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And apparently, Hagar believed she's looking at the Lord. And she names the place, God who sees me. So that's interesting to me. Why is it shocking that she sees God and God sees her? Go to Exodus chapter 33 real quick. Exodus 33 verse 20. Exodus 33 20. Uh, Exodus, let's back up one verse, Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, Moses, and will proclaim before you my name, yud heh vav And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, why is that shocking? Because she sees him, he sees her, and she what? Lives. Let's go to Deuteronomy 4.2. Deuteronomy 4. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 4.12. Deuteronomy 4.12. Deuteronomy 4.12. Then the Lord spoke to you. yud vav spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of his words, but you did not see his form. Only a voice. Now go with me to First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy six. First Timothy six. Way back in the back of your Bible. First Timothy six. And let's look at verse sixteen. First Timothy six, sixteen. Say Sovereign Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Whoa. So Hagar apparently broke all those rules, didn't she? <laughs> Either there's a glitch in the system, or God made an exception for her, or the angel of the Lord is something that we can see. And then she confuses the angel of the Lord with God, with the Lord, with Yudhe Vavhe. So what can we deduce from this chapter? What do you guys think? I want to hear from you. As generally say, permission to talk freely. So, Who is the angel of the Lord? So, Brian. Well, I, I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead, but the same thing happens with uh, Gideon and also with Samson's parents. Mm. They see the angel of the Lord. You can slow down. We're going to get there. Don't worry. Don't worry. So yeah, let's 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 pretend we weren't brought up in Sunday school or whatever. Christian tradition you were raised up in, we would leave this text very confused, wouldn't we? If we're just reading this for plain, like just it just washed up on a shore in a deserted island and we read it, we would be we, we left very confused. Is this an angel? Is this Yud-Hay Is this the creator, or is this a representation of the creator? But let's keep going. Let's try to answer this question. You guys want to go to the second occurrence? We got time for one more. Let's go to the second occurrence and interaction with this figure, the angel of the Lord. Go to Genesis chapter eighteen. Genesis chapter 18. It says, And Yudhe Vavthay appeared to him. That's the Lord, the Creator. Appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent and the heat of the day. So Avram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men. We're standing in front of him. Wait. Who appeared to him? Men or Bob Vate? Yes. 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 <laughs> and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass from your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, these uh, the three siyas, uh three sias of fine flour, knead it to make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man. He prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and calf and that he prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So apparently these three men, let's call them, can eat physical food. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, "She is in the tents. The Yudhe Vavhe said, "I will surely return to you about this time next year." And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son." And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "Am I a worn out after I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?" And yud heh vav said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for yud Vavhe? vav no. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. So it's interesting here that yud Vavhe vav is in the form of what? A man, apparently. And he's doing what? He's eating. And then he's talking to who in this narrative so far? Abraham and who else? Sarah. He's having a conversation with them. Then the men set out from there. The men set out from there. And they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And Yudhe said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yudhe Vavhe by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Yudhe Vavhe may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. Then Yudhe Vavhe said, <clears throat> Because the outcry, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see what, uh, whether they have done altogether, according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men returned. The men returned. They returned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood there before who? yud He vav He. It might say LORD in all caps. That's the name of God. He stood there before him. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you sweep them away at the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked do. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So who is he talking to? The judge of all the earth? And yud heh said to Abraham, if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered him and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. That's Lord in, in, in all caps. Was more like Adoni. I, I who am I, just dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking, will you destroy this whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, I will not do it for the sake of thirty. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. This is one of the few reasons why in any Jewish synagogue, ten uh, righteous men are what they call a minion. A minion. So you, you can get out the Torah scroll and read from the Torah scroll and do other things. And if you have a minion present, you can make certain judgments and that sort of thing. Okay, verse 33. And who? yud Hey vav heh What did he do? Went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Interesting, it doesn't call him the Melech of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. But hes it fits all the characteristics of the angel of the Lord. He's a man, he's eating physical food, he's having conversations with other humans, but he's called and he speaks as if he is yud Hey vav Hey. It's interesting, isn't it? And Abraham's conversing with him and, and negotiating with him. If we were just reading our Bibles and we did not have some of the passages of the New Testament that explain this, we would be left very confused, wouldn't we? If we're just reading this at face value. And as the weeks progress and as we go through all these instances, we're going to sprinkle in a few of those verses from the New Testament where New Testament writers are saying, He is that manifestation. Now, if you don't know this... We're leading up to the the ultimate conclusion, which will be a spoiler alert, that Yeshua is the angel of the Lord. And Yeshua is God who took on flesh and dwelt among men. And he was a perfect human, sinless sacrifice, who died for you and I. And he took our sin and our curse upon himself. And died, was buried in a tomb, and then resurrected three days later. And is now seated at the right hand of God. If you believe in him, you have a place in his kingdom in eternity. If you don't, if you haven't accepted his atonement over your sins, you are worthy of death according to God's law. So if you're here today, and you would like to receive Yeshua as your Lord and Savior, come see me after service. And I'd be happy to lead you through that process. But let's close in prayer. And next week, we're going to jump in and we'll probably cover a lot more ground with these instances of the um, angel of the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for your word and that your word is true. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has yet to receive Yeshua as their Savior, that they would be overcome with conviction and overcome with a desire for a Savior. Father, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that we would be ambassadors for your kingdom wherever we go and whoever we interact with. That we would be influencers for your kingdom and not influenced by this world. That we would be in this world, but not of it. And I thank you for the many blessings you've given to us as a congregation, the families that you've brought to us, the children, the babies, the expecting mothers, people from all walks of life who are here. May you draw us closer together and unify us as a congregation, even through hardships and uncertainty. We thank you and praise you for all that you have done and will do. Yeshua's name, Amen. Amen.